Hello and welcome to episode number 190 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we welcome back Maureen Freely, the great translator and author. She's talking this time about her translation of Teze Özlü's Cold Nights of Childhood, just published by Serpent's Tale. In fact, it's the late Teze Özlü's first book to be translated into English. It's a slim novella clocking in at fewer than 100 pages, but it certainly packs a punch. First published in 1980, the book covers an incredible amount of ground in so few pages. We follow a narrator whose life rather closely mirrors Teze Özlü's own, growing up and going to school in Western Turkey and Istanbul, before periods in Berlin and Paris, unhappy marriages and tortuous stays in various psychiatric institutions. Despite the fluid chronology and broad geographic scope, there's a profound sense of claustrophobia, of walls closing in, of entrapment. It's not exactly laugh a minute, but it is exhilaratingly direct, a real time capsule capturing something of what it must have been like to be an educated and restless young woman in various constrained surroundings and milieus, with political and social unrest also bubbling away in the background. It's just one of a handful of books that Teza Rosley published in her lifetime before she died tragically of cancer in 1986 at the age of just 43. We talk about her life and this book in the interview. But before we get started, I want to say a few words to appeal really. This podcast takes a lot of time and effort to put together. I really enjoy doing it. It's incredibly rewarding and I hope it's useful for everyone who listens. But I can't keep doing it without listeners support, without your support. I'm pleased to say that listenership continues to rise. It's steadily going up all the time, actually. We get over a thousand listeners for every episode, sometimes well over a thousand listeners. And that is very satisfying indeed. But for the last year or so, membership numbers have been going in the opposite direction. They've been going down. And if they keep going down, I'm simply not going to be able to continue putting this podcast out there. We launched Turkey Book Talk way back in September 2015, almost eight years ago. At the time, I really had no idea where it was going to lead, but since then we've published almost 200 episodes, giving a platform to researchers and authors of books on all kinds of themes related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature, the arts. The podcast is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners. So if you are in a position where you can support, please do consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member doesn't just give you that warm, fuzzy feeling inside. It also gets you various pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. 
To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. And I really will appreciate it very much indeed. But enough of my pleading, let's get on to our conversation with Maureen Freely. I started by asking her to introduce us to Teze Özlü. When and where was she born and how did her upbringing shape her work? Teze Özlü was born in Istanbul, daughter of two very, very patriotic teachers. She spent some of her childhood at their various Anatolian posts and then a large part of her childhood in Fatih, which is the part of the city that's in what we call the historic peninsula, traditionally more Muslim than other parts of the city. And she clearly won a place at uh, one of the prestigious foreign lycées. In her case, it was the Austrian lycée, which was run by nuns. That's really important part of her story because they did not get along. So because it was in the European part of the city, she and her best friend were in the habit of sneaking up the hill to around Galatasaray Tunev, the center of Bohemia in Istanbul, where her older brother was already you know, making his name as a, a very serious author. And they would be meeting in the, the Greek patisseries around there during the day. And so Tezer and her best friend would listen from the next table until they were admitted to their ranks. And uh, with time and a bit more rebellion, Tezer in particular became part of the Mehaneset. And then she graduated. Well, she didn't graduate from the Austrian Lycée. She graduated into life, uh, having refused to finish the Austrian Lycée and then went hitchhiking around Europe. But uh, it's important to remember for all of her rebellion against the nuns and the strictures of, of that kind of very, very 19th century school. This is where she becomes acquainted with uh, German literature. And her writing is so very placed in that tradition. I should say it's not national traditions, but traditions of the very interesting writers who refused those traditions and wrote according to their own lights, which at the time in Turkey was not so smiled upon. She returns to Turkey. There are many bipolar episodes that follow in which she receives absolutely unspeakable treatment and not very much understanding from the friends and family who clearly are having a hard time dealing with it. But she keeps on going. She manages to, to marry three times. By the time she writes Cold Nights of Childhood, she has found a sort of equilibrium. And she is happy with her, her third husband and goes to live in Europe again. And very, very soon after that, dies of breast cancer. And Cold Nights of Childhood is the second of just three books she published in her short lifetime. But it shares many similarities and parallels with those whose life that you've just outlined there. You know, we've got events in the book overlapping with her own experiences and real life being lightly fictionalized in the book. And the book is made up of four chapters with slightly different approaches in each one. Could you just introduce the book to listeners? You know, what's it about and how is it structured, etc.? So the chapters you mentioned are different, very different lengths. And the first one is about, it's called The House, and it's very much anchored in the house that she grew up in, in, in Fatih, that she really, really, really didn't 
like, although she was close to her grandmother. And like all of the rooms that we meet in other chapters, it is a very, very soul-destroying and confining place and highly regulated. That said, the the story doesn't stay in that chronological period. It's always leaping out of it and splitting off from it. And that's one of the most interesting things about her writing. She does all this for a reason. There are many Turkish authors who refused the the rules that were being made by the collective. But for me, Tezer is the one who breaks these rules on a sentence level and on a paragraph level, shifting tenses all the time, shifting location, going back and forth for no obvious thematic reason either. But in so doing, she recreates the home of her mind, if you like, which loses all temporality, especially when she's suffering from her bipolar episodes. And also because she is refusing regulation on a on a molecular level, but without much animus. That's one of the other interesting things about her. So that's the first part, the, the house. And I have to read this part, if you don't mind, the, the end of house. Uh, On Sundays, these days, if I'm strolling down an alley and catch sight of a father in pajamas, or if on a grey and raining winter day, I see smoke rising from a stovepipe and windows fogged with steam. If I look in to see laundry hanging up to dry, if the clouds are almost low enough to touch the damp bricks, if it's spitting rain, if I hear live football matches blaring from every radio, all I want to do is go, go, go and keep going. So that's the the first section. And then the next one, home is done. We go on to school, school on the road leading to it. And um, that is centered on the the Gothic convent school that was her incarceration, if you like, was her prison during the um, years of adolescence. And again, she describes it almost like she's doing a doing a graph of it. You know, it's just these are the roads, uh, these are the rooms, these are the courtyards. This is the car that the, the nuns pass through on their way back from mass, looking very, very strange. And then she charts her her escapes from that school. But in both the sections we've looked at so far, there are references to her suicide attempts and and other other episodes, if you like. The third one, which is the one that has the most mysterious title, is called the Leo Ferré Concert. And that does eventually center on a concert that she went to in Berlin, I think. She's jumping around cities in in this section and jumping around institutions. But it's at this concert that she sees this famous performer and realizes that a previous husband who liked this singer a lot had actually fashioned all of his gestures in imitation. So this section is really about the quest to be herself or developing a not just a philosophy around that that idea of independence, but a, a practice of it. You know, if I'd been through any of this, I'd be settling scores. But she she tells the truth and some of the truth is really, really horrible. But what is striking about the last section called the Aegean again, which takes place partly on the Aegean, but an awful lot of it takes place on the Bosphorus as well in Istanbul is her charting of these transcendental moments when she feels part of the earth, part of the sky, part of whatever is above the sky. So she's more interested throughout these chapters in escaping incarceration and when she's escaped it, not to look back, to look forward at at, at what's around her. And again, the only way that she achieves this is by breaking the rules of sentences and narration.
yeah, I particularly enjoyed that third section that you mentioned because that's one of quite daring innovation. You know, we see memories of life in Paris get mixed up with memories of life in Berlin and an unhappy marriage in Ankara, as well as time in a mental institute in Istanbul, traumatic memories of electroshock treatment there, blended seamlessly into this potent brew. It's very effective, I thought, particularly that section as a kind of microcosm of the book as a whole. Yeah. I wonder if you'll let me read the section about her recollection of electroshock therapy. Yes. Okay. So after this, I go into a post-electric shock coma. It's an extraordinarily strange thing, this sort of coma. To have gone through it even once is to have visited the other side of death. It has no midpoint. Electroshock has a beginning and an end, but no midpoint. Not for the patient, the person. But I have been inside that living death. And here I am again. While undergoing electric shock therapy, I can still think and feel. So things have advanced to the point that they're giving me electroshock treatment. Maybe they're giving me electroshock to make me talk again. The doctor must have come to the house. How strange it looks, that device he uses to administer the shocks. It looks like a shoeshine man's stool. Who knows? Maybe they didn't get the current they need. The city's current, in other words. It's always going up and down. And it can kill people. And now they put me into an electric shock coma in my own home. Do they want to make me speak? Does my husband really want to know if I've deceived him or not? So what if I did or didn't? Are they making me talk? They shouldn't have done this to me. I have no secrets. I treated them all well, even when I was ill. I never shouted at any of them, never attacked anyone, always suffered my anguish alone. If I die, so what? What if I die? Oh, but they went way over the limit with that shock. It's making my feelings vibrate. It's unbearable. I know people have died from electroshock treatment. People have told me. I heard this in class at the hospital. Is soon with me? She can't be. My mother, my brother, my husband. I'm getting electric shock treatment, but I know they're still here. I know who this doctor is, too. Soon I shall close my eyes and die. No one will bother with me ever again. What do they want from me? If my life is to end with an electric shock, I'm not angry. They only want what's best for me. Can this be natural? Is it even possible to go through this and still be thinking? But maybe it is natural. I am dying. The revolutionary struggle must continue without me, I say. I was never part of a revolutionary struggle, not during the 12th March era and not after it either. All I ever wanted was to be free to think and act beyond the tedious limits set by the petit bourgeoisie. We get a sense there of the style, which is quite distinct and direct, despite the quite wild subject matter. This style is quite detached and cool, actually, and it's not really in any way sentimental or romantic or spectacular. I just wonder if you could say a word or two about that. You know, was it difficult to capture that style as a translator? How was that as an experience? It wasn't difficult to capture it as a translator. It was difficult to live through it as a translator because it's very direct and completely devoid of the usual, you know, the usual emotional padding, if you like. It goes straight through to the, you know, it, it works like an electric shock on on the translator. So I had to I had to translate it in um, in small spells and then go back and try to understand what I had been through, what we had been through. It's a very interesting, artistically premeditated style. She's trying to get to places that normal sentences, normal approaches won't allow you to go. And also, she knows that to capture. A state of mind. If you know, I am sitting here, you know, at my desk, 
what I'm thinking is, and what I'm feeling is a conglomeration, a confabulation of, of many, many different things and times. And she captures that in a way that, you know, other experimental techniques don't seem to. Uh, and also, I like the, the the way that she grounds everything in, in spaces. The spaces keep changing, but you always know about the space you're in, the room you're in. When she goes suddenly from her, her, her apartment house in, in Fati to um, the childhood home in in the provinces, you know what what the road looks like as it goes down to the sea. You you see the little flowers coming up. She's very very strong sense of uh, space, which she conveys with just a few details, but the details are spatially arranged and very powerful. Now, the introduction to this volume is written by the novelist Aishigun Savash, and in it she notes just how radically unpolitical this book would have appeared in the fraught years of its publication. And there, of course, she's talking about the massive social and political unrest and violence in Turkey in the 1970s. And some of this unrest is referenced by the narrator in the book, but it's always in the background. It's never in the foreground. And it's almost like ambient noise. The real focus of the text is the kind of internal landscape, the internal dynamics that we're witnessing, the private rather than the public. Could you just say a word or two about this apparent lack of direct political engagement and how that was greeted at the time? Were initial readers alarmed by this? You know, was there criticism as well because of the fact that she was clearly not directly, quote, engaging with kind of moral political struggles at the time, which was so ubiquitous? I think that her uh, close literary friends understood what she was doing. I, one of the big mistakes that people make when looking at Turkish literature is to think that it's locked inside Turkey. You know, all of the most interesting writers are engaging actively and imaginatively with literatures from from all over the world and and, and discussing them. So she would have, you know, Ferit Edgu and Leila Erbil were two authors who were very close friends of hers, so I don't think they would have had any trouble with what she was doing. The general mood at the time amongst the revolutionaries, who, as she points out in the book, didn't all stay revolutionary uh, by any means, is that you had to, you know, there had to be solidarity, there had to be a groupthink. And she was actually, I would say, by temperament, incapable of groupthink. She'd grown up with it, and then she got out. I mean, there was certainly groupthink at home with her ultra Kemalist, um, very, very stern parents who uh, lived for the national cause. And so I think she was allergic to that sort of thing. But in the passage I read about the the shock treatment, she does mention the, the revolution and her main affinity with people who have been arrested and, and, uh, and, and tortured by the military in the aftermath of the March 12th, 1971 coup is... Uh, she knows what it's like to be tortured, and she knows what it's like to be pushed to the edge of death by electric shock treatment, which so many of them were. So she understands it viscerally. I think she's you know, very much in tune with, in harmony with the desire for a more just society, but it isn't her. And nevertheless, the subject matter is very radical. We're talking about mental illness, sex, gender relations, unhappy marriages. Obviously, these are themes that are quite far away from the public revolutionary fervor of, of much culture at the time. They're largely private domestic issues, but they are still very radical. And the way that she deals with them is very radical. And there's this extraordinary sexual frankness in the book as well. Yeah. And I assume that must have been shocking at the time the book was published. Could you just say a word about that as well? 
Uh, I'm sure it was shocking to uh, to some. I'm sure it was most shocking to her male readers or some of her male readers. It's important to remember, though, that second wave feminism rolled over the Turkish left just as it ter- rolled over their counterparts in so many countries. So there is a strong and ever getting stronger feminist critique about the state, but also opposition to the state. And sort of interesting conversations start then. She wasn't a big participant in those debates because she wasn't a joiner, as we've said, but she was very much capturing the, the spirit of the time. And so, you know, another thing is that she she did leave the country. She kept leaving the country, and 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 that was often frowned upon by the the most patriotic sections of the left. You know, although many of them had to leave, it was still exile was, was still is still something that is not necessarily smiled upon. But I think what you're looking at in Tezer Özlü's book is the beginning of the search for the language of female experience. And if we look at second wave feminism at the same time in in this country or the U.S. or France or Germany, you you find over and over again the uh, the male revolutionaries saying, "Oh yeah, of course, you know, women aren't you know women's experience is different, but uh, we can talk about that after the revolution." And so um, she's not going along with that, but I think that is where her readership starts to build. Now, the publisher compares this book to Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, and that seems like a kind of classic case of trying to find a recognisable Western classic to shoehorn a comparison to, and maybe doesn't quite fit. I wonder, who would you compare this to if you wanted to find some kind of more nuanced comparison, perhaps? I'm not sure I would. What I long to do one day is to do a map of people's reading writers reading because, you know, prizes have to be national, literary cultures have to be seen as national for some reason. But actually, if you look at the writers ourselves, we are not reading inside those boxes and what we read transforms what we write or complicates it or what we write is a response to what we read. And so uh, with Tezer Özlü, you know, Pavese was one of her her great lights. um, So was Kafka. And so were all of the interesting writers of the uh, of Middle Europe, if you like, that she had access to through her knowledge of German. And that is more important than whatever anybody is trying to shoehorn her into. We all need to sell books. <laughs> and and so it's the prerogative of the publisher to try to say, OK, this is like Sylvia Plath, because it's a woman at a time when women aren't very understood, who's talking about madness, but who is asserting herself. And I suppose the other the other affinity, despite the hyper-Americanness of Sylvia Plath, is the attention to the breakages of language and the possibilities that occur when language is broken. So although, you know, Tezeris is a, a lyric or a poetic writer, she's not a poet. Sylvia Plath, when she's writing The Bell Jar, she becomes a lot more conventional than she is in her poetry. Yeah, at least they're not comparing her to Chekhov this time, because it seems <laughs> like every, like Chekhov is like the classic go-to, just looking for a comparison, just yeah. say Chekhov. You know, it's become one of those cliches, like, it's uh, always a bit annoying. It's just the, uh, it's, it's the marketing and it's, you know, people pick up books in, in, in bookstores and they look at it for a minute. Now, there's all also the issues around jacket covers, which I must say, Serpent's Tell has done a very good job with this one because it, there is a mosque in the background. But importantly, there's a there's a woman from that, that period, a car from that period, and it's the Galata Bridge or it's Eminönü. Anyway, it's a contemporary photograph and I'm happy to see that the mosques are blurred. 
but uh, again, when Turkish novels in translation were few and far between, it was impossible to get a book out without a lot of mosque stuff going on in the, in, in the cover. And so we're, we're branching out a little bit now. One quite obvious comparison that came to my mind as I was reading was the author Leila Erbil. We published an episode last year with Amy Marie Spangler on Leila Erbil and her great novel, A Strange Woman, which was also finally translated into English only last year. The reason I say that is because the similarities are quite obvious. You know, they're talking about a similar milieu, a similar era. And there is also in that book a similar political ambivalence. And, you know, both books give us this strong impression of what it felt like to grow up as a restless, frustrated, intelligent young woman in this time and place. Do you think that comparison holds up? Sure. I believe Tessa Roslu and Leila Rabel were friends, in fact. Yeah, they were friends, but also it just goes back to what I was saying. It's the, it's the beginning of an articulation of, of how it felt to be a woman in, a, in, a, in an all-male, well, male-dominated, super-male-dominated environment, which, of course, I, I experienced myself from a... A bit of a distance, but not that much of a distance. You know, I know all these places. The other, the other thing to always bear in mind is that the 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 area in which all these men, all these writers, male and female, are meeting is very, very small. Really, it's it's just one little section of of Beulu. And so, one of the great things about that part of uh, the city, even now, is you get these, you know, mehanes and the bars in which uh, a lot of people aren't talking to each other, but they're because they hate each other. <laughs> or because they have history, but they're there very, very close together, you know. And I think that is one of the reasons why such interesting writing comes out of that kind of environment, because they're together in a small space, not accepted socially anyway by the, the rest of the country. And there are frictions and there are tensions, and that means that they have to go to tell the truth on the page. Tessa Roslu died of breast cancer in 1986 at the age of 43. She didn't publish a hell of a lot in her lifetime. But is this novel representative of the others that she produced or is it different? You know, how does it compare? I would only be able to say that after I translated them because I don't get to know them very well until I translate them. But she was true to herself in everything that she wrote, if that is enough of an answer for you. And what's her reputation in Turkey today? You know, who reads her? Has her stock risen since her death? I think it does. She is embraced by young women, uh, particularly young women writers and scholars, because she shows a way forward. I think that Ayşegül Salaş, who wrote uh, the introduction, is one of those. She points a way forward that you don't have to place yourself politically, strategically. You build your own influences and you write from your own influences, as I was trying to describe before. And are there any plans to translate and publish more of Özlü's work? I hope so. I hope so. If they need me, I'm here. The wonderful thing about translation is that you have to read and reread before you put any of your own English words on the page. And then once you do that, you have to read and reread and reread. And her work does operate like poetry and that it really, really calls for revisiting. And every time you revisit, you see a little bit more. That was Maureen Freely. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 190.
Don't forget, we need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going. You can extend that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is, among many other things, a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting, a key resource ahead of Turkey's upcoming election. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.